Thanks very much, Melissa. Um, it's going to be helpful if you keep that passage open. So um, can I encourage you to do that, page 1133, as we come to God's Word together. And let's pray. Dear Lord, we do pray, please, that you would speak to us as we just sang, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand the things we've heard read, so that whether we are familiar with these things or investigating them for ourselves, we would learn and we would be changed. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, why do I keep on sinning? Why is it so hard to live the Christian life? Whether we've been Christians a long time or a short term, none of us find it easy living for Jesus. And maybe this is what Romans 7 is all about. It's here to help us get our heads around that ongoing battle with sin. Maybe. Or maybe we're meant to read this chapter and think of a different set of questions. Why is living a good life still so difficult if you don't believe in Jesus? I mean, think about it. Shouldn't it be easier to, to, be, to, to live as a non-believer? You've got no external standards of right or wrong, just your own sense of what is right and wrong. And maybe Paul wrote Romans 7 to, to show us why living a good life is still such a struggle, even for someone who doesn't believe in, in Jesus. Maybe. Maybe there's a third option. Maybe Romans 7 is neither for the Christian or the non-Christian, it's for the kind of not-yet-there Christian. The person who believes in Jesus, but who somehow needs to move on to the next level. The, the Christian who's kind of stuck in the kind of rut of Romans 7 and he needs to get lifted out and get into Romans 8. Maybe that is what Romans 7 is all about. Maybe. But I'm not so sure about that. Romans 7 is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to understand. Everyone loves chapter 8. Everyone finds chapter 7 difficult. Especially when we get to that long section where Paul says, I, 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 over and over again. We read it and we think, well, he must be speaking about himself. And then we make the next logical step and think, well, if Paul is speaking about himself, then I can put myself in the shoes of Paul and um, draw a nice straight line conclusion to myself. So whether I'm a Christian battling sin or a not yet Christian struggling to live a good life, the chapter is about me. But as we're going to see, it's not half as simple as that. And I'm not sure that this chapter is really about me at all, or even really about Paul. Instead, we need to remember as we step into kind of biblical crocodile country, that this chapter, just like the rest of this letter and just like the rest of the Bible, is not about me. It's about Jesus before it's about me. It is, and specifically, this chapter is part of Paul's extended gospel presentation to this church that he wants to visit in Rome. And he said at the very beginning of the letter that the gospel is all about Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord. And so when we read this difficult chapter, we need to read it as describing the part that we play in Jesus' story, whether we're Christian believers already or not. And I hope it's going to help us as we read through it, wherever we are in our faith. Because when we look at ourselves properly, we get to see Jesus fully. And there are three scenes, I think, in this story. There's our new reality, our tragic past, and our natural helplessness. And those are the three we're going to work through. So first of all, our new reality decisively united to Christ. Our new reality decisively united to Christ, verses 1 to 6. Back in chapter 6, the big question was, shall we keep on sinning? 
And Paul says it's impossible for a Christian to keep on sinning as if sin doesn't matter. Because although sin used to be this, this master that held us captive, every believer, he says, has been set free from sin's cruel bondage, not through our own efforts, but through the spiritual union we have with Christ's death and resurrection. Verse 14 of chapter 6 sums it up. Just look back to that. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul writes that, and then he, but he knows that that is a controversial comment, to say you're not under the law, but under grace. It's the latest in quite a long list of negative references to the law, the Old Testament law, in the letter. And he knows that he needs to deal with that. Is the law a good thing or a bad thing? And he's going to come to that specifically in verse 7 of chapter 7. But first of all, he needs to explain what it means to be not under the law. And his answer is about our new reality. He says, you are decisively united to Christ. Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. It's a simple piece of case law. Basically, you don't need to keep the law if death intervenes. And so verses 2 and 3, an example, a wife is released from her obligations to her husband if her husband dies. Death releases her from that particular law. And she's free to marry another man. It's similar for a Christian, verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order, in order that, you, that we might bear fruit for God. So it's as if we are the wife in Paul's illustration. But this time it's we who die, not the husband. So we died to the law. When we believe that Jesus died in our place on the cross, we were released from the law's authority to condemn us for our sin. And we're not married to that abusive husband called the law anymore. But we didn't just die with Jesus on Good Friday, we were raised with Jesus on Easter Sunday. And so now we're married to Jesus instead, our loving, resurrected husband. Verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It's as if the law was like a catalyst in a chemical reaction. It facilitated, it stirred up, it accelerated sin. If you put God's perfect law in a test tube, and rebellious human hearts in the same test tube, there's only ever one result, the rotten fruit of death. Just think about it like this. Imagine what it is, well, not imagine, think about what it's like to be married to moralism, for your whole life to be consumed by this desire to be moral, okay? What, what happens? We either get proud at how well we're doing, or despondent at how poorly we've done. Uh, we look down on others who don't do as well as us, or we're crippled by self-pity because we don't do as well as we think we should. And we do more harm than good in our families, in our friendships, in our churches. That is the ugly fruit of death. 
It breaks human relationships, and ultimately it leads to an eternal broken relationship with God. But God unites us to Christ's death and resurrection so we can be fruitful for him instead. He releases us from our marriage to the law. He puts his Holy Spirit in our hearts and empowers us to serve us from the inside out. And we need to wait to chapter 8 next week and the week after to find out more about what that looks like. But first of all, Paul has that other question to deal with. What about the law? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And his answer is going to help us to see the part that we play in Jesus' big story, especially the baggage that we bring from our past and how much help we need to live in the present. So first of all, our present reality, decisively united to Christ. Second, our tragic past, thoroughly deceived by sin. Our tragic past, thoroughly deceived by sin. So we might imagine somebody sitting in the audience listening to Paul, and they say, hang on, Paul, I thought the law was a good thing. God gave it to Moses, didn't he? To show his people how to live. And and you're telling us that it makes us worse, not better. What do you mean? And Paul answers with a story. A story which starts and ends with the same conclusion that the law is good in itself. So look at, first of all, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. And then look at verse 12, the end of the story. So then... The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The start and the end of the story, the law is a good thing. But the middle of the story is not so happy. When the law is mixed with sin, the results are toxic. Not just in the present, but in the tragic past as well. We have all been thoroughly deceived by sin. So come back with me to verse 7. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It's important that we notice here, I think, that Paul is not writing a straightforward autobiography. What he is doing is he's putting himself in the shoes of God's people, Israel. And he is also describing, as he does that, the experience of every human being who has ever lived. He wants us to know what happens when fallen human beings come into contact with God's law. On the one hand, we really get to know what sin is. Not just in our heads, but in our experience. Paul uses the example of coveting. And it just so happens that that is the one commandment of the Ten Commandments that we haven't looked at as a church in our family services. We're going to do that next month. So let's think about some of the others that we've done. Maybe this will just remind you of some of the commandments we've looked at. Remember, you shall not murder. It's not just about don't kill someone. It's about the sort of hate in our hearts and how we need to work hard to love others in our thoughts and actions and words. You shall not lie. It's not just not telling lies but lovingly speaking the truth in all sorts of situations, even if it's hard. You shall not steal. It's not just not taking stuff that doesn't belong to you. It's recognizing that God gave it to them, not you. It's being generous with what we've got. Whatever the exact commandment, God's law, you see, is ultimately about our allegiance to him. But sin says to us, don't give even a modicum of your loyalty to God. And it stirs up rebellion in our hearts. 
It is a monster that uses the law for its own wicked purposes. It's like a kidnapper that uses the law as a forward operating base for its military assault against us. Listen to verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. See, this is the tragedy of human existence. We were meant to be spiritually alive, enjoying relationship with God, just as Adam and Eve knew in the Garden of Eden. Maybe as you read those verses, you can hear echoes of Eden there. But their experience became spiritual death, and our experience becomes spiritual death too. Whether it's Adam and Eve banished from the garden, whether it's God's people Israel condemned for their idolatry and rebellion, or whether it's you and me, sin has turned God's life-giving law against us. And we are all born, as it were, onto a spiritual death row. That is our tragic past, thoroughly deceived by sin. It's very easy, often easy, isn't it, to look at our lives or the world and come up with all sorts of explanations about why things are not the way they ought to be. Maybe it was a dysfunctional family as we were growing up or an unexpected bereavement, or an unexplainable personality trait that we struggle with, or a disrupted or a deficient education, or an inherited or an acquired mental or physical health issue, or a foolish or a selfish decision, or mistreatment by the hands of others. And of course, all of those factors and many others contribute to the brokenness of our lives. And it may be that some of those things are particularly painful to some of us this morning. And our life might feel like a tragedy we didn't choose and that we cannot change. But we must all remember that the most fundamental human tragedy of all is the way we've all been deceived by sin. That is the enemy within. Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, It used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. A few weeks ago, a report was published um, into the systemic and shocking failings of the Met Police. I wonder if you um, came across that. And God's law works a little bit like that. It exposes the ugly colors of sin. It's absolute rottenness. You see, what other power could use something so good as God's law as its base of operations to kill us. And so we must never fall into the trap of thinking that the law or something equivalent to it will somehow make us good. An effort to turn over a new leaf or saying to a Christian friend, look, you've got permission to ask me those questions. I don't want you to ask me because I want to take my own holiness seriously. Or our own habits of Bible reading or prayer or staying clear of situations where we know that temptation lurks. All of those things are good things. I encourage us all to think about those kind of spiritual habits. But they won't work if they are just forms of law. Because sin has far more power than we give it credit for. And we are no match for its tactics. By ourselves, we can never escape our tragic past, whether we're Christians today or not. That is what it means to be human. 
thoroughly deceived by sin. And so what is the answer? How can stepping into Jesus' story give us hope? Surely this wonderful gospel message, which Paul has spent five or six chapters already so far explaining, surely it can't just leave us in such a mess. Thirdly, our natural helplessness, desperately in need of grace. Our natural helplessness, desperately in need of grace. Now, just to begin this section, battles rage about who Paul is describing from verse 14. Is this the person who's a Christian, who's trying to live God's way, or is the person who's not a Christian, sorry, is this the person who's not a Christian but somehow trying to live God's way, or is the person who is a Christian but whose life is marked by an ongoing battle with sin? And there are convincing cases to make on both sides of the argument. Is this a Christian or not a Christian? Now, for what it's worth, my own personal view, having studied it a bit recently, is I'm not sure Paul is describing a Christian in these verses. It just seems to me too much of a negative view of the Christian life. And what is more, if the I in these verses really is a Christian, it seems to contradict a lot of what Paul has already said. So look at verse 14, for example. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You see, is is a Christian really sold as a slave to sin? That's not what Paul seemed to say back in chapter 6. It seems to be the opposite. Just look back to chapter 6, verse 18. It says, "You you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Or verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. So it seems to me that if this is a Christian, it's, quite, it's hard to read this, I find, as a Christian. And that Paul is more likely describing our natural fallen state apart from God's grace than a battle, an ongoing daily battle with sin in a Christian's life. Ordinary human experience is is the never-ending conflict between our desires for good and our tendency to do evil. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Confused? I suspect so, and I wonder if that is the point. Paul looks at his life, maybe the present, and you can read that and think, that is what it feels like to be a Christian. You can read it like that, I think. So maybe the present, but definitely the past. And he sees this spiritual tug of war in his heart, as well as in everybody else's heart. Even before he believed in Jesus, he knew the goodness of God's law. There was a part of him that wanted to keep it. 
But he was always destined to let the rope of that spiritual tug of war slip through his grasp because there was that enemy within, verse 17, sin living in me. And it's not as if Paul is saying, well, it's not my fault, I'm abdicating responsibility. It's as if he says to God, look, there's this saboteur called sin in my heart, and without that, I'd be just fine. No, Paul says, verse 18, it is, sin is him. Verse 18 says, it's in my sinful nature. And so I kind of hesitatingly want to say that the story he describes here is the, is the life of the non-Christian. It is what it means to be human without God's help in our lives. It shows us, by nature, our desperate need for grace. Yes, if we've been Christians a while, it is very understandable to read these verses and hear our own personal struggles with sin. We sense the tug of war in our hearts too. We experience it. But I think the, the beginning of the paragraph ought to determine the way we read the whole. Verse 14 again. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. This is what it looks like by nature to be sold as a slave to sin. It is a life marked by constant defeat. And the Christian life isn't. We can expect victories over sin. Not total victories. This chapter is not about saying you need to move out of this life into the higher victory life of chapter 8. Chapter 8 is hard too. But we can expect victories nonetheless as long as God helps us. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. That's the experience of the person in this story. It's a bit like, imagine a, a, a non-believer who says, well, I, I respect God's standards, Christian standards, but I, but I know I can't always keep them. I try, but I, I know I can't. And it looks for a moment like there's an advance on the battlefield of that person's heart, but then it takes no time at all for sin to launch a counterattack and take them hostage again. And where does that leave them? Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from that, this body of death, this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. As we look back on our life before we became a Christian, we, we realize how desperately in need of grace we were, once were. Wretched, subject to death, slaves to the law of sin. That is what we were like. That is our natural state. And so as Christians today, we must never make the mistake of thinking, well, it'll be okay if I go back. We can't live for God by drawing on some hidden, unpolluted reserves from deep within our pre-Christian hearts. We can't do it by our own efforts. We can't, do to be good. we can't do it by our own efforts to be good, however much we agree that God's way is the best way. And if you're, not, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian believer, you need to grasp as well your natural helplessness. There is no nature reserve inside the human soul that doesn't have sin in it. You can't go into that nature reserve and somehow find something that will rescue you. You 
as a non-Christian person this morning, we as Christian people this morning are desperately in need of grace. And that is where we started the chapter, where Paul started the chapter. Jesus died for us to release us from the law we couldn't keep. He rose again so that we might be joined to him and live a life that bears fruit for God. I said, didn't I, at the beginning, that this chapter really isn't really about me. It's about him. It started with Jesus, his death for us, his resurrection that joins us to eternal life. And it ends, verse 25, with the promise that he will rescue and deliver us. There's a lot in between the beginning and the end of the chapter, but it's a mistake to go away thinking, well, this chapter was just about me. Because our stories aren't the most important stories. Jesus' story is the most important story in the universe, isn't it? And it begins when we remember who we are as Christian people, decisively united to Christ. That is your present reality this morning if you're a Christian. That is wonderful news. That gives you a reason to live, not for yourself, but for him. And we continue to live Jesus' story as we, as we don't forget, but we keep on acknowledging our tragic past. We've been thoroughly deceived by sin. We need God's law, but, sorry, we need God's law, but God's law can never save us. It doesn't save us before we trust Jesus, and it doesn't save us after we trust Jesus. And so we're sustained to live Jesus' story by constantly saying to him, God, I need your help. I'm naturally, utterly helpless, desperately in need of grace. And we need to cry out to him for the help of his Holy Spirit day after day after day. And that is what chapter 8 is all about. Should we bow our heads and pray? Our Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you this morning and confess that we find some things hard to understand. We find ourselves hard to understand. Whether we're Christian people this morning or not yet trusting Jesus. Those moments when we look inside our own hearts and minds and histories and experiences and we just come away thinking, I don't understand myself. And... We thank you that you tell us what we are inside and our need of your grace and your help. Help us, Lord, not to make the mistake, the mistakes of going back to the law, whether we're Christians or not. Help us, if we are believers this morning, to understand how wonderful it is to be united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And help us today to remember how wonderful it is to be constantly in need of your grace and we pray that you would pour your grace into our lives by your holy spirit that we might live for you for we ask in jesus name amen